In regard to what Pastor just mentioned to you, this is one of the publications we have out on the table. And in the weeks ahead, we'll probably send you the new publication as a congregation. There'll be more copies of that magazine, so take it and peruse it, and especially pray for heart cry. When Pastor mentioned about uh, an offering and all, we didn't expect that. When we come to churches, we come at our own expense. We don't expect any love offering or honorarium, so this is just a very kind gesture on your part to do such a thing, and of course, on his part as well. But but thank you so much for praying for us especially. Uh, we need that. Right now we're looking at quadrupling our staff. The ministry has just exploded worldwide. And so the Lord has laid upon the hearts of God's people to give. And they're supporting Heart Cry presently. And we want to be the best stewards that we can be of the money that God has entrusted us with. I will say this as a side note. Um, once again, we seek to live very modestly by faith as a staff. Paul leads the way. The executive board has the last couple of years insisted that they increase his salary because he has a family of six, lives very modestly, and Paul in tears has told him, said, you're not going to do it. You're not going to increase my salary. Please do not do it. And so they backed off. But right now, what we do as a staff, I can honestly say our men and women that work for Heart Cry Missionary Society live with a very modest income. Nothing extravagant, nothing affluent whatsoever. And so we're very grateful that God has called us into this ministry and he's called us to a life of faith. So we appreciate your prayers so much in the days ahead regarding our mission. Well, this morning, if you would, look back with me, and most of you have your Bibles open to our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 14 and following. As you well know, as you study the epistle of 2 Corinthians, that this is, in essence, a defense of the apostles' integrity. Uh, Paul is being called on the carpet. His integrity, both as an apostle and as a believer in Jesus Christ, has been reproached. And therefore, Paul is answering that with grace, with love, with dignity, with great discretion, and so this morning, we want to look at a subject here in the context of this defense of that man's integrity on the subject of effectual evangelism, effectual evangelism. The text here that has just been read in our hearing is arguably the greatest biblical text on the subject of evangelism in the Bible. Now, you might find a better one, brethren, uh, which uh, addresses such things as the nature of regeneration or maybe even the plan of salvation in all of its simplicity and power. But you'd have a very difficult time finding a particular passage of Scripture that covers all the essentials of what I believe to be vital evangelism through the local church. That reminds me of something. We are a local church Ministry. We are not a parachurch organization. Once again, we're not criticizing parachurch organizations. We believe God has his hand on them, but we see the vitalness of doing everything through the local church. Now, not long ago, I did a series not only for our people in Sheffield, Alabama, but also for our heart cry missionaries on the subject of the forgotten factors of evangelism. And we did in that 18-part series various things that either the church has totally neglected or maybe we have 
overlooked in our evangelistic appeals and endeavors. But listen to this. Some of the factors that were addressed is the importance of persuasion. You know, the Bible tells us that knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And the importance of how we not, need not to be easily satisfied when sharing the gospel with people. We should not readily back off because they just seem like they're not interested whatsoever. But we should press them, not in an ugly, not in a mean-spirited way, but we should press them as one that really has a legitimate burden for their soul. Other things that I addressed was the importance of evangelistic zeal, the art of pleading with sinners. I pray you, I plead with you in Christ's stead. I implore you to be reconciled with God. It's interesting, I heard the conversion stories of Al Mohler and John Piper, and both of them came to Christ as a result of someone standing before them that was not the most theologically astute, but they pled for their souls, and both those men today that God uses so greatly came to Christ as a result of somebody caring enough to plead with them. Plead with them. We addressed other things, such as the significance of sharing naturally what God has done for you. And let me challenge you with this this morning. The greatest weapon that you have in your arsenal of rescuing sinners is to share what great things God has done for you. You may not have all the understanding of theological truth. You may feel very inept at times in knowing the proper terminology to use in engaging sinners. But it's like Charles Leiter and Paul Washer were at a college campus one time, and the vast majority of the kids that were there were believers, at least said that they were believers, and there were some unregenerate kids that came in and listened to the lectures. But Leiter stood before this congregation of students, and he said, here's all you need to know about apologetics knowing that so many young people today are enamored with apologists and apologetics. But Charles Leiter looked at the group and he said, here's all you need to know about apologetics. Just tell people how beautiful Christ is. And that's all you need to do, friend. Just, just tell people what great things God has done for you. So you may not have a plan of salvation. You may not have, know all the ins and outs of how to, to circumvent arguments, you know, to engage people with the gospel. But just tell people what Christ is doing for you. So we looked at these subjects, and it's interesting. Some of these things appear right here in our text. Now, what I want to do this morning, as I normally do, is I give you three major thoughts, three major concepts that I want you to think about with me. And let me give you a heads up here. I, I use a hodgepodge of translations. I'm with people sometimes who are King James only, and I said, it's okay to be King James only as long as you're not King James ugly. <laughs> so I use Old King James, New King James, NASB, and ESV. So if you would bear with me here, this is important. I do it not to confuse people or divide the congregation. I do it for clarity. So it's interesting. We're going to see three things here this morning. And first of all, I want you to see with me the importance of gospel motivation. When it comes to missions or it comes to evangelism, the significance of gospel 
motivation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Don't miss this now. Look at it in your Bibles. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. This is ESV. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. You'll notice the phrase, for the love of Christ constrains us. Now, it's interesting that Vincent casts light upon this text by expounding on that word, constrain. The love of Christ constrains or compels us. It means very simply, brethren, to shut up to one line or purpose. In other words, it's being pressed in on. You're walking an increasing narrow way. You're feeling this this relentless constraining pressure. It suggests a walled road. And so Paul is being motivated by this constant reality of the love of Christ. And I remind you, it's not the love for Christ, it's Christ's love for us. Now, motivation, think with me for a moment, is vital in sustaining personal evangelism. Few believers, brethren, know anything of sharing Christ as a lifestyle without a proper incentive. I find it to be the case in all of my life, whether it's my relationship with my wife, whether it's my relationship in personal evangelism with the lost, whether it's dealing with sin in my life. What sustains motivation is a savory object. And oftentimes we don't have that. The Apostle Paul could fittingly bear the reputation of soul winner. There's nothing wrong with that phrase, soul winner. For a soul winner is not the product of what the Puritans called fits and starts. You know what they meant by that? All of a sudden, we might have some evangelist come into our church that's high-powered. He's the greatest thing since Elijah. Everybody gets stirred up. Remember, the pastor preaches a cutting-edge message and engages people with an interest in a particular area, and there's new resolves that come forth, and many times, sadly, that only lasts for a few days or perhaps at most a week. So there's a new resolve, but it doesn't last. The Puritans call this fits and starts. The apostle is not one that presents Christ when he feels the mood is right, nor does he witness when he confronts a crisis. If subjective feelings and circumstances dictate his evangelistic appeals, his soul winning and our soul winning will be characterized by inconsistency and barrenness. Have you noticed that? Now, interestingly, as you think on the text, you find that the apostles' motivation did not come from without, but from within. Call it grace. Call it a spirit birth conviction. But whatever it was, Paul never rested in his pursuit to win men to Christ. And why? It all goes back to motivation. You see, in the text, you'll notice 
that Paul gives us what is the heart and motivation of all gospel endeavor. The driving force, brethren, is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Track with me now, listen. It stirs and sustains a love for souls like nothing else. I don't know if you read the account of the Moravians. Many people are enamored with the 200-year nonstop day and night prayer meeting that went on in the Moravian church. They became, humanly speaking, the primary catalyst for missions globally. So they're drawn in by that story. They're inspired by it. Oftentimes, people think about their sacrifices that they made. We're inspired, specifically speaking, by the sacrifice of Johann Dober and David Nishman that they made for gospel mission in giving up houses, lands, and family. We love stories like that. But these young men, it's interesting that what drove them is that they had deliberately, intentionally studied, contemplated, and relished in the depths, listen to this now, the depths of the atoning beauties of Jesus Christ. And so much so that suddenly they came to the conclusion, full reality now, not just some academic exercise, but they knew the weight of the reality. Listen, they said if Christ paid such an infinite price to redeem fallen man, then no sacrifice is too great to reach them. It was the lamb and him crucified that was their impetus for such sacrifice. What is yours? The result of their discovery, these men, if you read the account, embarked on a risk-taking venture, for in 1732, these two young Moravian missionaries from Hernhut, Germany, sold themselves to a slave owner and boarded a ship bound for the West Indies to preach the gospel to the African slaves on the Caribbean islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix. As their ship pulled away from the docks, it is said that the church there was gathered on the seashore, and the men waved to their comrades, to their faith family. And they said, may the lamb receive the reward of his sufferings. They had experienced something, brethren. It was the gospel that constrained them. It was the propitiation of Christ that compelled them. It was as Spurgeon admonished the result of them plumbing the depths of the crucified lamb. Gospel themes, it's interesting, are laid out for us in this text. I just share them with you at a glance. This is what's behind Paul's motivation. He speaks, first of all, as we already mentioned in verse 14, of the love of Christ constraining Verse 15, the very next verse, he emphasizes substitutionary atonement. He died for them. Verse 15, 
he rose again. There he embellishes the resurrection. In verse 18, he speaks of the reconciliation of God in Christ, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And then he speaks of imputed righteousness in verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. This is what I'm discovering these days. Everything I do, my ministry is a grandfather. I have eight little grandchildren. I love those kids. I'm just pouring the gospel into them these days, taking them for ice cream, taking them to the park, taking them to the pet store. You don't have to, you don't have to spend much money doing things like that. But along the way, as we're driving, they're in their car seats. I'm, I'm just peppering them with the gospel. And when I get there, anything that comes up, whether it's a behavioral issue or whether it's just an inquiry, I keep pulling them back to Christ because, friend, listen, moralistic teaching is not the power of God into salvation. It's the gospel. And so I'm finding great freedom, and I'm seeing some real good feedback from my grandkids about this matter of the gospel. Think about this this morning. It is in the grasping of and relishing in these rich themes that Paul has laid down for us here in the chapter that we are impassioned to make evangelism a priority. Sadly, sadly, believers, there are many believers who have wrapped their minds around the enriching fiber of the gospel, but unfortunately it does nothing for them except to give them the sense that they are part of a common pool of evangelicals who bemoan the fact that their churches are not growing, but know little, if any, motivation to share Christ with their community. It's a respectable sin. We can talk about why our churches are not growing, but are we doing the work of an evangelist? And perhaps the reason we're not is because we're deficient in motivation. I believe, brethren, that the gospel in all its glorious aspects is the supreme motivation in igniting and sustaining evangelical zeal. Think about this for a moment. This is personal. This is something that I've experienced. It's something for you. I believe that the gospel in all its glorious aspects is the supreme motivation in our evangelistic campaigns. But our, our zeal is founded on love. I've been in a church and a denomination and a group of people that motivate people to get out and visit and get out and evangelize by guilting them. It doesn't work. If it works, it only works for a short time. It's short-lived. Today, what sustains my evangelistic thrust is the gospel. And let me explain. The reason for it is because there are things that somehow we have overlooked, things that motivate us through a love basis, not a fear basis. For example, we witness for Christ oftentimes out of a fear of not having our works pass the test of fire at the Bema. 
That's legitimate. Or sometimes it's a fear over what lost men will eternally suffer. I mean, listen, friend, you understand your children and your loved ones are headed for a hell that is indescribable. You have no idea. And certainly that's a legitimate motivation. Or sometimes we may experience a fear that may, that in our, our heart feel like there will be no crown to lay at Jesus' feet if we don't do the work of evangelism. Whereas, now listen, when the beauties of Christ's atonement once again have ravished my heart, I find incentive to share Christ not with I have to get attitude, but rather I, I get to do it. Let me explain. The gospel, brethren, enables us to witness from an experiential vantage point because it's something we've experienced. Unlike the judgment seat of Christ or the horrors of hell or eternal crowns that have afforded me no spirit-given, listen now, spirit-given experience, on this side of eternity, I have been made to taste a transforming power in the gospel. I'm an object of love. God took the initiative by his mercy to arrest me. I knew what it was for the love of God to be shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit. The love of God for me in Christ. Think about this. There is an abundance of motivation from an experiential power of the gospel in me. So while I'm encouraged that God so loved the world, John 3, 16, by that truth, by that reality, and I'm very enamored with the fact that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5. What strikes such beauty and such drive in my heart is the fact that Christ died for me. He died for me. Do you know the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart that you know that you are the object of such infinite mercy and that Christ died for you? This is what compels evangelism. As Don Whitney says, if we have discipline without direction, it's drudgery. But what compels our direction is Christ and him crucified. It must, brethren, to make our evangelism effectual. I'm not oblivious to you. I'm tracking, I'm watching and monitoring. I'm not going to bore you to death. And I'll curtail this message for you to take home one stinging truth that hopefully will determine a defining moment in your life as a Christian and as a minister of Christ. 
Effectual evangelism, first of all, is gospel-motivated. Secondly, very quickly, it involves divine intervention. Dear brothers and sisters, salvation is of the Lord. It's not the product of our cleverness, our craftiness, our manipulation. You cannot force people to be regenerated. Look at the text once again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. He says very simply in those words, and all things are of God. Now think about this. True evangelism is centered on God. He orchestrates things according to his own good pleasure. We must believe, brethren, in the supernatural are you with me now? In the supernatural element of evangelism. We wonder how, why some people, after they prayed a prayer, asked Jesus, and in their heart made a decision, why their life never changes. It's because they've not experienced anything that is supernaturally distinct. God must do something for them. It's like a friend of mine. He knew a guy in the community, and the man was a fisherman. And he saw him one day at the store, and the guy was talking about how he needed God. And my friend was very sensitive. It wasn't like he was arrested with a divine moment that he really wanted to sit down and talk about it, but, but he just shared in passing with my evangelist friend that he needed God. And my friend said to him, he said, yes, yes, God needs to do something for you. And that's the question I would ask you this morning. Has God ever done anything for you? You're looking at what formerly was a lost Baptist preacher. A lost Baptist preacher. And God had mercy on me. So here's a thought I want to leave you before we move on. The great miracle of conversion is not the changes that other people see in you, but the changes that you witness in yourself. And I ask you a question. Take a step back and look at your life beyond your profession of faith. Has anything happened in you that was distinctly supernatural, that God did it? All things are of God. The thing I want to bring out here in the text is that God is the one who is prominent in evangelistic work. You see, Paul is engaged in this work of reconciling sinners to Christ because he's been reconciled. It's hard to plead with people to be reconciled with God unless you know the reality of God's work within you that you've been reconciled. Think about it. What gives the apostle desire to see men converted is his own conversion. Nature replicates nature, brethren. And the fact that Paul desires to evangelize is a tribute to the Lord of the harvest work in his own soul. You see, you see God's work in the text. God enlightened Paul to see the love of Christ in his death in verse 14. In verse 15, God enabled Paul and enables us to no longer live for ourselves. By the way, you know what selfishness is? 
And there are people in churches today that are sincere professors of Jesus Christ. They say, I know the Savior, but they are abounding narcissists. Selfishness is the whole world inhabited by one man or one woman. And just because you come to a good Bible church like this doesn't make you a Christian. There's an element of dignity in the fact that you come to this place regularly, friend, but I ask you, how do you live behind the scenes? Does everything have to revolve around you? If it does, there's an absence of God. Because he died for all that they which live should no longer live for themselves, but unto God. Do you know I love you? It's not a formality, what I'm saying. Do you know I care for your soul? If you're here and outside of Christ, I care for you. But the way I care for you pales in comparison to the intimate care that God has for you as a sinner. Listen, God gave Paul and gives us the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, verse 16. God made him and makes us new creatures in Christ, verse 17. God entrusted, now watch, please track with me. God entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to all who were reconciled in verse 18. God has equipped all whom he has made ambassadors with the message of reconciliation, brethren, verse 19. And then in verse 21, God made the apostle Paul and makes us the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God has done something for him and does something for all of his elects. Has he done anything for you? Al Barnes, the commentator, I love the words here. Please listen. What he says in regard to this, he said, this refers particularly to the renewing of the heart. God's done something. And the influences by which Paul had been brought to a state of willingness to forsake all and to devote his life, listen, to the self-denying labors involved the purpose of making the Savior known. And I love these words now. You're talking about cutting-edge truth. Listen to this. He deeply feels, the apostle does, that the whole plan and all the success which has attended the plan was to be traced not back to Paul's zeal or fidelity or skill, but to the agency of God, the gospel. So, I'll give you the third and final point this morning. If essential evangelism is to be experienced individually and corporately in the local church, not only we must understand that what propels it is gospel motivation, and we must not ignore the fact that salvation is the Lord, divine intervention. But thirdly, there's our responsibility, and that is human cooperation. And you'll see the words, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Watch now. As though God did beseech you, plead with you by us, we pray you, we implore you, 
in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. One thing, let me pull out of this in passing. He's not recording this simply in an academic mode. He is impassioned by this. While not a few believers have an aversion to hyper-Calvinism, yet it's possible to live like one. Don't pray for sinners. Don't have a prayer list for sinners. Don't distribute gospel literature to sinners. Don't give a rip about people that are lost in your neighborhood. Don't invest in the kingdom of God to reach sinners. So we react to hyper-Calvinism, and yet we live like one. Think of this, when a person lets his view of election silence his verbal witness, he has an imbalanced understanding of the doctrine of election. You see, brethren, I remind you, we are Christ ambassadors. We represent King Jesus. We stand on behalf of God. We plead in the place of the slain lamb as former enemies of God who have been reconciled, we persuade men, and we cannot afford to be passive about it. I'm a Reformed Baptist. But I want to get beyond the academic. I want my heart to be warmed and I want to look upon and feel with sinners and I want to know the compassion of Christ upon those who are outside of Christ. Let me explain here. As former enemies of God who have been reconciled, we must persuade men. On this point, let me take the risk of saying that if you're not seeing men come to Christ in your life as a Christian, it's not because your fishing hole has been fished out. You have no idea, but God has many people in this community. But he chooses to work through us as his human agents. He does not do his work of evangelism independently of his people. John Owen said this, it just blew me away when I read this, brethren. I mean, this guy is Mr. Intellectual in the Puritan scheme of things. And yet, he knows a felt Christ. He knows the burden for sinners. And he makes this statement to a group of ministers or about them. He says, ministers are seldom honored with success unless they are continually aiming at the conversion of sinners. And whether he's talking about vocational ministers or people in general that are required to do the work of an evangelist, he said those people are seldom blessed with success 
unless they're making the conversion of sinners their primary aim. Listen to this very quickly. In response to Owen's statement, Horatius Bonner said in his words for winners of souls, the resolution that in the strength and with the blessing of God, the Christian will never rest without success will ensure it. It is the man or the woman who has made up his mind to confront every difficulty, who has counted the cost and fixing their eye upon the prize has determined to fight his way to it. It is such a man, such a woman that conquers. Personally, I've seen this in my own life, so I share it as one that's still learning the lesson. When you witness to people and people tip their hat or they say, I'm just not interested in a casual way, we're too easily satisfied. We need to continue to go after them. We were just with a heart cry missionary in New Brunswick, Canada. He pastors in a very small little village of 1,800 people, Doaktown, New Brunswick. Dave's story started a church 10 years ago. They have right now about 182 people coming on Sunday. Dave didn't tell me this, but his people testified to it. As I talked to them, so many of them, Dave personally led to Jesus Christ. It is an amazing thing, friend, but 128 of those people came to Christ as a result of Dave's evangelistic appeals. But he never quit. One of our coordinators from Canada told me this. That the men told him up there that Dave's story went after sinners. And some of those people he went to their home and witnessed to for over a hundred times. And amazingly, He's got six people in the congregation that came out of the UPC movement, which is the Jesus-only United Pentecostal Church that is a cult. You've got to speak in tongues there to know that you're a Christian. And Dave said, I would go to those guys. And he said, they would get mad as fire. But as long as they didn't tell me not to come back, I kept going back. And God disarmed them and brought them into the kingdom. It's amazing. I ask you this morning, are you too easily satisfied? The question we need to ask ourselves is, what do we default to, brethren, when there there are no conversions in our ministry? Do we comfort ourselves with the doctrine of predestination? Or do we crawl up into the lap of election for consolation? Well, what's going to be is going to be, que sera, sera. If God's going to save him, he's going to have to do it. Once again, he uses us, but we must make ourselves available. Do we interrogate ourselves with the probing question, does the fault lie with me? Am I being as diligent as I can be in earnestly praying and witnessing for the conversion of sinners? I'm almost finished. Listen, God's law of sowing and reaping, I remind you, is as effectual today as it was in church history. 
He that sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. He that sows bountifully will reap bountifully. But he that doesn't sow at all will not reap. In case you're not theologically minded, let me just put it in very simple terms. If you shoot at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So our brother Dave's story once again made this statement to me. He said, Brother Don, God does not give an increase on that which has not been sown. And you better believe that. So it's easy, you know, we're just going to support missions, but you don't support missions in your neighborhood by taking the initiative to go over and love and appeal to someone with a gospel tract. It's easy. When you support missions globally by, through some organization through your church, you feel good about yourself, and it kind of relieves the guilt of not witnessing to those that live close to you. So let us believe God, brethren, by purposing as the ambassadors of Christ to take the message of reconciliation to the lost. Let us be gospel compelled, trusting him who is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by Jesus Christ. And listen, let us be diligent in our soul, in our soul winning, in our engagement of sinners to bring many sons to glory that the lamb may receive the reward of his sufferings. And I remind you of this. This is good for our conscience. It's good for our soul before the Lord. Remember the words of John Owen. Ministers and God's people are seldom honored with success unless they're continually aiming at the conversion of sinners. What are you going to do? I'm picked up one morning, airport, Hartford, Michigan, picked up there to be transported to the Detroit airport. Pastor friend of mine, I'm very transparent about my needs, my struggles, my glitches, my besetting sins. I ask my brothers to pray for me. This is a part of my life. So I share with them three or four things that I'm real concerned about in my relationship with God. Heart cry all the time, our prayer meeting on Monday through Friday, a regular petition that we make is, God, please save us from us. Save us from us. And so I share with this brother going to the airport these problems, struggles in my life, and then I finish. And you know what he has the nerve to do? He's my friend. And he looks at me while he's driving the car, and he said, well, what are you going to do about it? I ask you this morning, what are you going to do about it? You've got a testimony if you know Christ. Just tell people what great things God has done for you. Begin there. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of sharing such a great honor to be here. Thank you for this dear pastor, Lord, for the reality that you put in his heart, his concern, his vision. Thank you for this precious faith family.
God, continue to use these people. I pray, God, for both young and old. I pray for everyone that have had the work of Christ applied to their soul and the reality of God doing something for them. I pray, oh God, that you would burden their hearts to do the work of an evangelist and sustain their resolve as they look to Christ and him crucified as their driving motivation. Father, not everyone that's here this morning is a Christian. Some are in Christian homes. Some regularly come to church here. but they know in their heart of hearts that they have no witness of the Spirit that they're a child of God. And I pray that you would give them no rest until they fly from the wrath that is upon them and find peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Please have mercy. Please have mercy on their soul. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.